Hey, Andy, what was your first computer? So I don't remember what the model of it was, um, but I remember it was a very old, it was like an old IBM PC. And I started probably with it when I was probably four or five years old, just playing like video games and stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I I always loved to play around with computers and uh, especially Legos too. Um, always had like a kind of a temp tinkering mindset growing up. Uh, Lego Technic or just, you know, like Lego City or science fiction stuff? Uh, no, just, just old school Legos. Um, the uh, the Lego Technic stuff was kind of after my, came along after my childhood years. So. Okay. Yeah. And and you played with the IBM PC and how you started programming. So what was your first Hello World? So I, yeah, I tried to get into programming. Um, a couple of times, like first in um, elementary school and then early high school. Um, and I could never get it to stick. I think if it, if I would have been growing up in a time where like there's more programming courses available nowadays, um, I would have done a little better. But I, I, uh, I tried and failed several times to get into programming. And it wasn't until I took a programming class my senior year of high school that it actually you know, started to stick for me. So I, I got into programming pretty late, actually. So why you started at all? So, I mean, if... So, I, yeah, so I, I loved uh, computer game, games growing up, and uh, I, I always had the impression that I would just write video games for a living, right? Because um, that seemed fun. So originally I got into programming because I wanted to write video games, my own video games. But then as I got into it more, um, I just kind of started to like programming in general it didn't really matter what i was writing um i just i enjoyed the process of building it um and it turns out there's a lot better market for um making enterprise software than there is for video games yeah i guess sure. so. yeah yeah but uh, what games do you like um i i like strategy games i'm notoriously bad at like the the shooter games mm -hmm. um i played world of warcraft a ton in my high school years mm -hmm. um more than I, I care to mention how many days I put into that game. But uh, that gave me a lot of like soft skills, I guess, like teamwork and leading small groups. So I actually, I really like that experience. So you, you don't regret the lost time? No, I don't regret it at all. I think it was it was super useful experience. Yeah, perfect. So um, this is more or less like team, teamwork, right? In... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have, you have leaders and you have... Uh, people that you need to work with. Some people are, you know, easy to work with. Some people are, you know, conflict with each other, just like in, you know, the real business. Mm -hmm. And what kind of figure you were? So I guess in the words of Warcraft, it was like you could choose, you know, a appearance or how whatever it's called. So what yeah, was... I I I, uh, I switched around a few times, but I I usually played uh, um, like the bigger bigger characters, mm -hmm. like tanks and stuff. Oh. Because um, I liked having like all the, the pressure. I mean, I did sports too growing up. And I, when I did baseball, I was the pitcher. And uh, when I played hockey, I was the goalie. So I like, I like the high pressure positions. It's, uh, it's exciting for me. Oh, so you played hockey? Yeah, just through high school. I'm from I'm from Minnesota, so mm -hmm. there's not there's not too much else to do here in the winter besides like hockey and snowboarding. And snowboarding uh, yeah. as well. So a lot of the yep. boards. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Hey, cool. So um, this was not only, you know, 
you are not a typical hacker in the basement, so you also enjoy sports. Yeah, I like to I like to get out and do stuff as well. But I I spend plenty of time on the computer. That's for sure. No mountain biking. Uh, no, I do regular biking, but no no mountain biking. No. Okay, interesting. Because I thought you know snowboarding. I, yeah, we we don't have a lot of mountains uh, around where I'm from, so um, I've done it before. I enjoy it, but just don't have the the train for it. Okay. So nice. So um, <clears throat> so you started. Um, so you did the World of Warcraft, and you wanted to, to 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 create your own game. So you started several times to to programming, but it was too hard because there were no examples. So what what yeah. was your first? What happened then? I mean, so so when I think like when I first my first ever programming project was my first year of college. Um, the professors there were were great, and they basically figured out how to hack into a nintendo wii remote so it's just like a simple controller with an accelerometer in it wow and mm-hmm. um we would basically they wrote an api for that and the the students us would um basically read that accelerometer data and we made just a simple like fall down game um that was controlled by the accelerometer reading so that was um that, that was really interesting to me and that's kind of what got me hooked into it mm-hmm. when was it that was uh let's see that was probably late 2011 um Mm -hmm. and then i yeah and that was the the project that i i pitched in my ibm interview when they said you know tell us tell us the project that you've done i talked about that and uh that's how i got started with ibm yeah it's pretty cool right so i mean yeah i I liked it a lot it was it was a ton of fun worked on it with a few other people Mm -hmm. um yeah it was a blast so if you would like, you know, to be successful at IBM, you have to start, you know, hacking Nintendo sticks first, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, there's a couple ways to do it, but that that's definitely one. Okay. And and so this was your uh, college project. And after that, you just started at IBM? And this is the story or you had something in between? So I, yeah, I started interning for IBM after my first year of college. I actually started out in the IBM I or, you know, AS400 area. Cool. Uh, did, did that for a year, and then I switched over to, in 2013, I switched over to the Webster Liberty team, um, and I've been with them ever since. Okay. And uh, you studied in Minnesota as well? Yep. I, I was born and raised in Minnesota. Um, I'm in Rochester, so there's an IBM location here, and I happen to grow up here. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, so you're actually pretty young, right? For um, uh, 2011, you, uh, it was a study, so I assume you were 20-something, right? Yeah, I, I was 19 years old when I first got into IBM. Hey, cool. So now so you I'm, are 25? I'm 26 now. Yeah, 26. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, a little bit older than I am. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, but um, this is actually impressive because what I would like to know is, so you're pretty young, um, what is your impression of the whole Java E and the Liberty? I mean, you are a young developer. You could do whatever you like, and you're doing enterprise stuff. I mean, you enjoy it, or is it boring, or what's your impression? So your honest impression? Would you like rather you know hack World of Warcraft, or you are happy with Open Liberty? Um. So, so yeah, I I really enjoy working with the Liberty team. Um. It's it like our internal culture we have is is like very special within IBM. Um. Like everyone's everyone's very positive, um, you know. Every, like we have lots of team players that do things for the good of the organization, uh, both in the development side and like the management side. Um, so we're like 
just kind of a big family almost um, within within IBM. So it, it kind of feels like we're our own separate company, and we just kind of have to plug into the rest of IBM at, up top. Um, but for the most part, I I really enjoy it, and I like I I like to do more of the you know forward looking, innovative type uh, development with Liberty. So like I like to I worked on Java E eight a lot and Java eleven a lot, um, and I I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm less of a fan of of the support side of things, um, but I but that's you know a, a whole half of what we do is you know paid software support so that customers can get run in production sleep well at night this is what i notice over and over again because um i don't know whether you know but um uh, j2e or java e has not always you know a good reputation that is told to be i don't know boring and slow and what i noticed recently is i have I have to work from time to time or have I enjoy to work from time to time with young people and uh, startups and students and then they don't know the whole background of Java E and if I show them the modern Java E stuff they are delighted and this is immediately taken and uh, in one project was really funny they asked me you know constantly why the thing is so fast it's like I know funny you ask because uh, usually I uh, I have you know people assuming like the enterprise stuff is slow and the overhead is high and this seems also to be in your case you know you have no prior experience you know with the real web sphere I don't know whether you saw it already so the you know the web sphere full or classic whatever you call and um, and just with the recent uh, new stuff and it seems like you're really enjoying this right yeah, I really enjoy it a lot. And I, I actually have, so the organization I work in, we handle both WebSphere traditional and um, WebSphere Liberty. So it's the same engineers, the same, mm -hmm. you know, 20 years of experience going into Liberty, even though Liberty itself is only, you know, five or six years old. Our support staff has, you know, some of them have 20 years um, doing support for uh, Java EE applications and environments. So I, I did implement, I worked on um, Java EE 7 for WebSphere Traditional. So I do, I have some uh, exposure to it. And it's, mm -hmm. yeah, we've definitely come a long way. Just the, the just the Java EE ecosystem in general, like mm -hmm. how far things have come towards the more lightweight, fast uh, runtimes. So what's your impression impression of Java EE 8 and MicroProfile? I mean, you, you see it's all the time from both sides. So, I mean... Yeah. So yeah, micro profile is another good one to mention. Um, I Java E8 was good. Uh, it's been on pause for a while. Just Java E has been on pause um, while it's migrating over to Jakarta EE. But I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen in that space after you know the the floodgates open and we can start uh, iterating in that space again. Uh, but in the meantime, micro profile has a has been a great platform to basically do that kind of work and it'll continue to be a good platform to do those type of things even after Jakarta E opens back up. Um, so I really enjoy the pace that things are moving at now, like um, where you have, you know, small specs that are just implemented out on GitHub. You have your CI CD pipelines, you push artifacts to Maven Central. And it's just, it just seems like the whole ecosystem just seems like a well-oiled machine at this point. So I'm really happy with where it's at. 
Yeah, I'm also really happy, really happy right now. I was not so happy two years ago because it seems to me like a micro profile will become, you know, the alternative to Java E. And this is nothing wrong with alternatives, but the problem is all my clients had already traditional application servers and now and there was no way to introduce something else. And but what happened right now, like actually, that one of the best use cases is uh, Open Liberty itself. You can have both. You can activate Java 8 module as well as micro profile, and you have both at the same time. And and this is what I really appreciate because you know Java E moves slower, but is I would say pretty complete. It's not like lots of start stuff I'm missing in projects. And micro profile iterates quickly. So I get the newest stuff on top of the stable stuff. And I think the combination of both is just perfect. Yeah, definitely. And I think MicroProfile is filling a nice niche where the you know the smaller specs really help out to have more bite-sized technologies. So like you have in, in Jakarta, you have you know your JPA, EJB, CDI, like just these absolute mammoth specifications that are practically frameworks in of themselves. Um, whereas in micro profile, you have things like health check um, or metrics or something. That's just a super, it's a, a simple thing to just sprinkle into your application. Um, and you don't have to rewrite the whole thing. And I think that's one of the key things that's made micro profile successful is people can take existing applications and what they already know and, just sprinkle in some micro profile stuff without having to do a complete rewrite from the ground up because that's expensive to do. And you don't want to be doing that, you know, too yeah. often. And uh, also very pragmatic, for instance, in the um, micro profile metrics, they are just referring to Prometheus, you know, uh, labeling and, um, and types, which is, uh, would probably never fly in the traditional Java E because uh, Prometheus would be considered as a, I would say not proprietary stuff, but it's not, you know, as standardized and, and the micro profile people are more pragmatic, which is also very good. Yeah, definitely. I, I like how micro profile is more like Java EE is its own ecosystem and it tries to be self-contained, but micro profile is at least aware of the other technologies that are out there. And it kind of helps glue those pieces together. Um, like one of the things that is being looked at in micro profile now is like the um, service mesh patterns, um, like with Istio and Kubernetes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So at least acknowledging that people, you know, people are using these things in production. You know, how can we make programming models that, you know, fit into this nicely? Absolutely. Um, are the other young people in your team, you know, similar-minded as you that they really enjoy, you know, the enterprise stuff, or you are the old lonely youngster? No, there's actually quite a few of us in the uh, Liberty team that are. You know, I'll say under 30. Um, and yeah, they all, we all do, you know, different types of responsibilities and whatnot. But for the most part, everyone uh, just lo- likes programming, I think. So um, it doesn't really matter what the end product is. It's, it's more the interaction of like building something, giving it to a customer and having, you know, them like it or ask for more feedback and, you know, being able to present them with something new that, you know, fixes a need. Mm-hmm. Um, so now about Open Liberty. So you are, you you are very active. This is actually how I found you on GitHub, and uh, I had a small issue. It's not the issue at all. So what I noticed is that Open Liberty is very how to call it exact and strict regarding to the specs. So they try you know 
or or you try to be to uh, to write you know very exact how to call it implementation of the Java e standard and um, which I'm a little bit loser so uh, what I try to do is you know to to have uh, to be more pragmatic about that and one issue is what I found with uh, open not issue um, one uh, implementation which uh, what I found with open liberty is if you activate for instance the Java e8 specification open liberty also says okay if you would like to have the full Java e8 spec um, you will have also to activate SSL because Corba will probably need SSL. And the problem with SSL is it needs some certificate generation and stuff which I usually don't care about. So most of my Java E8 projects don't use Corba. So, yep. But I understand that, that with Java E8 is the full spec, so Corba is a part of that. And I dig into the uh, into the source code in GitHub because what I wanted to do is to have a Java E8 full specification without Corba and without this SSL certificate generation to have easier configuration and faster startup. And then I found like your issues or your posts, what comprises a Java EE8 spec. And this is like, okay, seems like you're really knowledgeable, a nice guy, so let's do a podcast so I can, you know, get some questions, answer with you. My first question is, which is a little bit bit uh, hidden in uh, Open Liberty, is if I say Java EE8, I would like to have Java EE8 support. What Open Liberty does, this Java EE8 support, is like a set of dependencies which are loaded then. And the question is, where it is configured? What is Java EE8? So Open Liberty knows that Java EE8 is JAXRS and CDI and everything else because I see this in the logs. The question is, where... How Open Liberty knows what Java E8 actually is? So, yeah, that's a good question. So, Liberty is basically broken down into um, lots of different pieces. We call it there. It's it's built on an OSGI runtime. Uh, so, if you've ever worked with OSGI, um, basically you break down a set of packages into a jar, and that jar has metadata such as like. Um, what packages you need to import and what packages you export, so that way you can get static resolution of um, the class. You know the classes contained in that OSGI bundle. It's actually very similar to the Java Nine platform mm-hmm. uh, module system, but just you know OSGI has been around a lot longer and it's uh, dynamic has dynamic capabilities. Um, so it has a lot more. You get more a lot more fine grain control with OSGI. So. First of all, Open Liberty is built on OSGI, and uh, using that, we say, okay, say take the um, servlet feature for example. The, the servlet feature has a manifest, and we say, okay, the servlet feature requires these three bundles that are required to um, that contain our servlet container code, and maybe it also requires our um, you know TCP transport feature to be enabled. So we have public features, which are the things you put in server XML. And we also have internal features that we use for our own internal categorization for feature dependencies. So a feature can, a Liberty feature can pull in OSGI bundles, and it can also pull in other Liberty features. So it's basically just this nice little tree that you get, or this graph that you can get, um, where we build up features, and you can enable either a single feature, 
or we have what's called convenience features. And that's like your web profile eight or your Java EE eight. And those are just, those basically don't have any bundles associated with them. All they are is convenience features that just pull in other features such as namely, you know, all the, all the various features that comprise Java EE eight. So Java EE eight and web profile are convenience features and they're basically empty jars just with the manifest. Uh, they're just dot, dot MF files. And where are they? Are they just bundled in a big jar? They're, mm -hmm. Yep. They're in, uh, <laughs> so this is getting into implementation details. I mean, it's all public stuff, but if you go in WLP slash lib, that's basically where we put all the implementation okay. details, uh, of Liberty in there. So all of our jars, all of our feature manifests. So if you poke around in there, you'll see about 300 jars mm -hmm. that comprise the entire runtime, um, And they're all, you know, appropriately named based on what they do. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a features folder under that. And that features folder holds all of our manifest files that basically declare um, what features are and what their, you know, what other features or bundles that they pull in. Cool. And uh, is there a command line interface, no commands where I can list all the features or you know this? Yeah, I believe there is. I don't know it off the top of my head. Because um, I think there should be, you know, if there's OCN kernel, usually they have uh, like command line interfaces. But um, if you find something, just send me a link and I will put it to the show notes. Um, sure. um, so what it means to me is I could create my own feature, like right? I could create my own, you know, uh, almost Java 8 feature without SSL and Corba. Right. And um, Liberty is, is was designed that, you can have what we call user features. So they're not official Liberty features, but actually um, other people, they can be stack products that run on top of Liberty mm -hmm. um, or they can be end users like yourself. And you can actually define your own uh, feature files um, and those can you know, pull in other features or your own custom uh, bundles that plug into the runtime. That's a pretty advanced thing to do. Typically, unless you're being, con unless you're trying to add another layer uh, in between the Liberty runtime and and like the end user applications. Mm -hmm. um, usually, just simply writing an application is the best way to go. Mm -hmm. But uh, to solve my problem, so what I would like to have is Java 8 without the SSL overhead. This is basically my thing because the, it affects the startup time of Liberty. Um, I would create a user feature and just copy the existing Java 8 feature and remove whatever I don't like, right? Um, it's not quite that easy of syntax. So the in server XML, you're used to writing an XML and you just have to deal with the, you know, the what we call the public short names of features. Yes. Um, if you're going to do a, a manifest, I'm sure you could infer it, um, but it's not. Uh, it's it's probably not going to be that portable it's it'd probably be easier to just have a snippet of server xml that you include in your configuration uh, we have looked at ways to um, exclude features from convenience features uh, we got that request specifically for example someone wanted to use hibernate instead of eclipse link which is the j implement jpa implementation that liberty ships uh, so they wanted to enable all of um you know java e8 but they wanted to exclude the jpa feature so they could bring hibernate instead um and not have the extra eclipse link and know, is it working open. with hibernate because there's uh, also interesting information for my client so uh could open liberty run with hibernate instead of eclipse link yes absolutely we did some work uh 
somewhere between one and two years ago where we made a what's called a jp we called it the jpa container feature and that basically only pulls in our jpa uh, runtime integrations for liberty but it's agnostic to the jpa implementation that's used so you basically can bring your own jpa implementation and that and that can hook into um, even the liberty transaction manager yeah, this is important, exactly, because um, what I would like to have that the transaction gets propagated um, until the um, Hibernate session uh, yep. through JPA. Yep. Okay. This is actually great news, so you should write a blog post or something about that because um, I think I got already the question whether Open Liberty can also run on Hibernate, with Hibernate. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, have to put out a blog on that. <laughs> okay, uh, Back to my SSL problem, um, I, what I also try to do is is just I just try to include the um, all the libraries. As a, if if you include Java eight, um, what what you will see in Open Liberty in the logs how this is expanded. So how the convenient feature is expanded, you will see you know all the dependencies like CDI and JAXRS. Yep. And and I played with that, and I try you know to add um, uh, library by library. But at the end of the day, one library pulled the SSL again, and it was slow again. Um, this is the the problem I had, and as I gave up, I was like, okay, who cares about you know one additional second startup time? I had no time anymore, and just you know what I'm doing right now, just using the Java eight full and micro profile on top of that with the SSL uh, dummy. Um, uh, dummy setup and it works well for me but uh, w which you have a rough idea where the SSL overhead is pulled in so which library requires the SSL or which feature requires the SSL um, I don't know that one off the top of my head I think if you're enabling like app security 2.0 or 3.0 that will pull in Probably uh, SSL. Yes. Basically, if you enable any sort of security-based feature at all, mm -hmm. somewhere down the stack, it'll end up pulling in SSL. Yeah, you know Erin um, Schnabel? Yep. Yeah, she used to be on the Liberty team, so I've worked with her uh, very yeah. frequently and still chat with her. Yeah. Uh, so she's ex extremely knowledgeable as a true hacker and I uh, really recorded uh, a podcast with her, I think, uh, last year. And... Uh, at the very beginning of Open Liberty, I tested Open Liberty, and we met the Java one back then. And uh, we had the problem that by activating the Java E8 feature, um, I had to de define, I think, uh, first user or SSL store or something like this. And this was also very related because uh, the reasoning was because of IOP over SSL or something. And yep. uh, so, and um, back then it was not that easy to do that. So it was not obvious. But the funny story was, uh, so I came to the IBM booth, and Erin wanted to chat with me about a demo app or something like this. And I asked her about that, uh, how to do this, and 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 she said, "Okay, do you have your notebook?" I said, "Yeah, uh, here is the Open Liberty configuration." Do you have VI? I say yes. And she's just fired up VI, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> changed yeah. my configuration in a five second. It works. Like, thank you very much. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, this is uh, the best, uh, no booth experience I ever had on conferences. Yeah. Uh, who are you? Said, yeah, I, I'm just a developer. I was like, okay, this is, uh, and the others are also developers. I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is great. This is amazing. Usually if you go to the booth, you have, you get no answer. I don't even know. 
bother uh, asking any questions, but IBM was completely different. Yeah, good. yeah. Erin, Erin is awesome. She is. Uh, she was one of the original, I think, five engineers that kind of started the Liberty project from the the proof of concept phase internally. Um, yeah, she's she's one of our ten Xers. So, meaning she gets ten, she gets done like ten times as much as everybody else. Oh, so so yeah, uh, she's, she's awesome. Cool. So now, um, what what do you oh, like yeah, to, that? Yeah. So back to the. Just if I can interrupt quick, back to the SSL problem. I saw you put out a video on that for, I think, when we were ba first betaing Java EE8. And mm -hmm. I saw your video on that, and I was like, oh, well, that, that's kind of bad user experience. So what we do now, actually, is we automatically generate um, a key store password, which was the thing that Aaron had to do for you um, in VI. So now now that's all automatically generated if you don't specify your own uh key store password basically um so 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 nowadays you can just enable job e8 and start the server and there's no special configuration needed to have a clean server startup and this is so, pretty cool and this was uh this change was caused by my video on youtube yeah i saw your i saw your <laughs> video and i was like oh well, that's kind of that's kind of rough user experience so anytime we i see things like that or anytime anyone else from the team sees things like that we'll definitely try to you know polish off the user experience because we have we spend a lot of time and effort having you know the the cutting edge program models like your, your java e8 micro profile 2.x um but if it's hard to use like if the, if the out of the box experience is bad you know no one's going to use it yeah um so so i think the user experience is super important and it it's uh sometimes it's it's something that the developers of any product can gloss over if they're, you know, black belts in that technology already. Yeah, this is this is actually awesome. So what I will do, I will more often record something with Open Liberty, you know, and um, then we get the next killer application server, I think. Yeah, there we go. So um, you are you are IBM's. So I will uh, also, you know, um, misuse you for another topic, and this is GMS. Um, you, you know what it is, right? Java message service. You can just message, send messages back and forth. Yep i I know it. I know the basics of Java messaging service, but I will add the disclaimer that that is probably the least. I'm the least familiar with that technology out of any Java EE specification. I would say. Yeah. Uh, no. No problem because the there is no technology it's just set of interfaces which are pretty simple and there are two concepts you are sending you're writing messages to a queue or to a topic and this is basically it and you have two choices uh, tr transient or persistent communication so and 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 and, and done right yep. so um the problem is of course you need an implementation of the jms because uh, just jms is like just jdbc this is just empty stuff Yep, and of course IBM has MQ Series, so I hope you heard about that, right? It runs on AS four hundred, and um, everyone, you heard about MQ Series? Yep, I've heard of MQ. Perfect. I've never used it firsthand, but I'm definitely aware of it. So now you get a task from me at IBM internally. So uh, this MQ implements, of course, GMS, and uh, this is very stable and very popular, actually. GMS implementation in enterprises, or I would say most of the large companies already have MQ Series running. For unknown reasons, uh, it is uh, 
widely underappreciated. So what happens frequently to me in projects is like my clients have MQ series running and they think that the the usage is complicated or I don't know what they think. And they ask me, you know, what we should use for service to service communication. And they ask me about Kafka and, and Kafka is great, but uh, this is a completely different use case. So they just would like, you know, to exchange messages between microservices. And yeah. um, so and I say, you have MQ series, let's do this. Like, no, it's impossible. It's just way too complicated and uh, no one knows about that. And what I did several times, I just used the MQ series. And I have to say, um, you only need some parameters. If you have the parameters, you don't need any external dependency. It is just works out of the box and uh, you send the message and you are set. So you just need to you know uh, annotation. I would say one annotations um, with... I would say about five attributes you have to know and you can send yep. the messages back and forth and you can rely on, I would say, probably 30 years of experience with reliable messaging. So if I were IBM, I would push MQ series a little bit more. So this is just the message. So if you know someone from your from your company, so you should do something about that because um, yeah. yeah, what I don't do you- get that, you know, this is like, great technology and no one tries to integrate that with uh gms and 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 if i if i if i show this to my clients they say amazing uh, i mean this is very simple so yeah it always was it's like for, forgotten technology right yeah i think that's yeah that's definitely something that ibm has a lot of um very very stable products like db2 mq zos all those things are super super stable you know they perform well but they kind of require that almost arcane knowledge in order to use um so definitely that's one thing that we've been working on a lot lately is is improving user experience to get that you know the out of the box experience better because there are nowadays there's so many technologies and you can't rely on students coming out of college already with zos experience for example um yeah so but if you would compare for yeah but if you would compare for instance uh, you know uh, kafka configuration with uh, gms configuration i would argue gms is simpler way simpler and yeah. uh, far more elegant so this is the crazy stuff right so um just a message to you if you can go to someone with uh, mq or gms knowledge and just show how easy can it be and i have no idea how mq can be run on Docker or not Docker or how, to, but it, I think something could be done to improve visibility of MQ. And this is particularly interesting for clients who already have MQ. And uh, before they use something else, just I would stick with JMS because uh, to you, this JMS is very easy to use. You you have a JMS context, it gets injected. So with one liner, you can send a message and one method on message receives the message so it's really very yep. easy to use yeah i'll have to go have you uh i'm sure you've heard of alistair nottingham right yes he's uh yeah so he's he's actually started out in i believe the jms area so that's his that's his uh area of expertise so i'll definitely have to go go back after this uh and and chat with him about yeah uh it was about the jms experience but have, have, have you heard have to, I will have to invite invite him to my podcast as well. And I have already some arguments with uh, with not I think is at not right at Twitter. 
it's yeah, like something like that. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, naughty code. Yes, yeah, so, no, no, yeah, exactly. And um, because uh, this is funny, because I'm coming from the project perspective, so I'm not not a server vendor, and I have complete different perspective on usability of application servers. So uh, I think we had an argument about uh, server size or something like this or, or packaging. And I said, for me, it's the most important thing, you know, small wars, simple POM, no dependency and ready to go. And yep. and his point of view was rather from the optimization server perspective. So we had a longer discussion. And uh, But I will ping him about GMS. So this yeah, this actually uh, a great discussion. Thank you. So I will do this. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to deep dive on JMS, Alistair is your is your guy to talk to three hour um, podcast but, <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay yeah. um so one other thing i was going to add on that is i know that in the micro profile space one of the things brewing i'm not sure how how closely you follow micro profile mm -hmm. but one of the things brewing right now is a reactive messaging mm -hmm. uh spec mm -hmm. for that uh, so that's another thing that we're that is being looked at kind of you know mm -hmm. reinvigorating the messaging space it doesn't necessarily have to be kafka or anything um but yeah so that's yeah i need to i need to get back and look at the messaging uh, why is it interesting microprofile because of your work or just genuinely interested in microprofile and you like that sorry what was that did you ask why am i interested in microprofile yes because of your work or you just you know interested um, in microprofile yeah it's it's a little of both so okay. for for you know my day job we have to You know the the Open Liberty runtime supports MicroProfile, and I have a little bit of involvement with um, some of the MicroProfile specs. Um, but also, I see it as you know a, a way to keep um, you know kind of innovating and using new technologies in the the Java space, like as a user. Um, so, like for example, one of the projects that uh, we worked on that I worked on with a small team uh, last year was we built a like a small microservice based game running on open Liberty called Liberty bikes. And basically what it is, it's for Liberty servers running. Um, and you can, it's like a multiplayer web-based Tron game. And we used, uh, you know, Java E8 and micro profile, I think 1.3 technologies there. So that was really useful to see how, like from a user perspective, how open Liberty gets used, how these technologies actually play out. And I was able to, you know, give a lot of user feedback, you know, back into our own uh, runtimes team and and help out. Mm -hmm. I, I found this on on your GitHub uh, page. This is was called like Liberty Bikes, right? And this is like uh, the yep. black background with like red lines. I just saw these screenshots, and I actually wanted to ask you about that. And uh, this is like this is a microservice based game, and there are four microservices like. What are the microservices? Do you remember? So, what is like four wars communicated with each other, or what? What is it? It's just uh, four wars. So we have our front end was written in um, in Angular, mm -hmm. um, but we still package that up into a war file that's just running a super tiny Open Liberty server. So it only has the servlet runtime enabled. Mm -hmm. So that's a really small footprint there. That's our front end, and then we have a another service for single sign-on integration. So it handles like our Google, Twitter, and GitHub single sign-on options. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a separate microservice that kind of acts as like the front for our uh, 
our player database. So that's where we store uh, like pl- player names and their stats and their ranking information. And then we have our fourth microservice, which is the game engine itself. So that's where you, where you actually have that's the service that actually has the WebSocket connection out to the the client. Um, and that was actually uh, turned out to be a really good. Um, demo for microservice architectures is because suppose you had 10,000 people wanting to play Liberty bikes all at once. Um, you know, you don't have that many people, you know, you have relatively few people utilizing the, you know, the authentication service or maybe the registration service. Um, but you're going to have a lot of load on that game service that's running the web socket and doing, taking care of all the player moves. So you can actually scale out, you know, independently, that game service, just one small piece of your application and not, and have like redundancy there and not have to pay for, you know, the scale out of your other services that maybe don't have as much load. Cool. Were you involved in, in the code coding this or, you know, the code? Yeah. Yep. So then the question is about scaling. So this interesting one, because, uh, WebSocket connections, a WebSocket connection is bound to particular node. So if you have, let's say, if you would start, you know, five wars as a pot, the uh, already existing user will have to come back to the same pot again, right? Correct. But this is, uh, and uh, you know how you implemented the load balancing is like IP based or whatever. You know what I mean? Because um, the load balancer which sits in, in the front of the of the pots or Docker containers, whatever you have, um, it will have to know that you have to return to the already existing pot, right? Yep. So all of our, um, all of our like messages that get passed, for example, if I want my player to turn left, um, that message is prefixed with what game ID it's going to. And that game ID can be used to route the message to the appropriate container. Okay, cool. So yeah, this is the traditional, um, uh, well, traditional is the, 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 the most simple solution. I got actually exactly the, the question of the AirHex TV before before the podcast and someone asked me about scaling and and websockets and i said okay um i didn't mention the load balancing because he explicitly wanted to, to know about you know multiple pods and i said okay you will have to replicate the data behind the scenes because otherwise there is no way um to implement this because uh, websockets are stateful yep yeah cool and um you know how how big the wars are um they're they're pretty tiny. I know we we don't use um, our core game services. Like we only we stuck to Java EE and MicroProfile APIs, so they're all you know thin wars. Um, cool. I would guess less than you know way less than one megabyte a piece. Uh, the only exception to that was when we actually had to build um, JSON web tokens. We had to to bring in an extra library. Um, so we could actually construct the JSON web tokens, you know, within the services and, and sign them. Um, but in some architectures, you could even offload that to a, a separate service. And uh, and I think that's even besides that, there's some discussions in the MicroProfile JWT group going on about maybe standardizing a way to produce JSON web tokens. Uh, yeah. Don't quote me about that. But I think personally, I think that would be a great enhancement for the the MP JWT spec. Yeah, not a big deal because uh, they have to parse the JSON web token anyway. So usually the, the server will already use a uh, a JSON web token library, a parser library. 
So and this library usually is also able to produce the JSON web token. So this is not like you know a huge problem to solve. I would say. Right. The question is why you will have why you had to produce the JSON web tokens because usually they will come from Angular and then they could be passed you know behind between the microservices just as they are. So why you had to produce your own JSON web tokens? Yeah. So. We produce our own JSON web tokens for the internal system calls. So when we had, for example, when a game is over and you want to, you want the game service to tell the ranking service, uh, you know, increase this person's stats by you know, oh, one point. Okay. Um, basically, we would actually have a JSON web token representing the system identity. Um, and I actually demoed that at a conference uh, last year of how you can... Um, you know, secure these backend endpoints because I used um, Open API, which is a different microprofile spec. It allows you to um, view your backend REST services and you know invoke them with a, a web browser GUI. Um, and I showed how you know without JSON web tokens, you I could just boot, if I found that REST endpoint, I could just boost my player's score. Um, but then when I secured it with JSON web token with a system level token. Um, you know, then it wasn't vulnerable anymore. And I, I know you can solve all that with, um, you know, not exposing those backend services anyway, um, but it was just an interesting exercise. Mm -hmm. So um, on, on, on Game Over means uh, you had something like a timer service, which ran asynchronously? Right? What was that? You said Game Over? Yeah, you said uh, on Game Over, you had, you know, to send... A token to the other services was the use case. So if the game was over, you had to do something with it. But this was like a timer service or an asynchronous service, right? Because otherwise, yeah. So the, a game, a game round just runs like you have, um, you know, one to four people per game round, and a round only lasts for maybe twenty to thirty seconds. But basically, you just run around in this box and you just avoid each other. Um, and if you hit, if you run into something, then you're out. And the last person who's alive is the winner of that round. Um, and then when a round is over, that's when we send the stat updates. Ah. Um, and then you can requeue and move to the next round. Um, I never had the concept. problem with JSON Web Token. The reason is a different, right? So this is a game. So it means you are doing something. But I mean, your actions on the screen is not like request response. So you're running around and properly via WebSockets, the coordinates are sent to the server and they can cause other events, right? And this is where you have the problem. And right. uh, in my project, it's like, you know, the Angular would send to the server like an order request to a JAXRS service. Then we have already the token. And if other services are involved, we just send, you know, the, the token we already have to the other service and we are done. And the only problem we have is if on asynchronous, um, there is an asynchronous jobs or services running like timer services, then you don't have the token. And then usually we uh, ask a service like external service like Keycloak. I don't know whether you have something similar uh, on, on Liberty. It's like an open source SSO solution. And, um, and it can impersonate a timer service. Let's say, okay, this timer service is actually the user and you get a token like a technical user okay mm -hmm. but interesting point was the game so what you did with uh, um was the with the token production and um and uh, what i wanted to ask you 
is um, Open Liberty a popular choice? So many clients are using uh, Open Liberty, as opposed to no, like just, WebSphere Liberty, or no, no, just in general. Just, uh, in general. So you have the this is like you know popular solution because I see in my projects Open Liberty more and more. And um, to question this is like uh, popular choice. So you have lots of clients using Open Liberty. Um, I don't so. First of all, I guess I don't know those numbers. I'm a no, guess no I'm numbers, a early developer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I feel like adoption is is going at a very healthy rate. Um, the Open Liberty project just started in, I think, what mid 2017. Um, so it's not even been two years yet, and we're we're seeing you know things move into production now. So that's um, that that's a good sign, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a very good sign. So this is also my impression, yeah. and uh, some of my clients also using Open Liberty already in production. And uh, I get also questions about Open Liberty, and some clients do not recognize that not that now Open Liberty is completely open source, because at the beginning it was like a half open source. You could use it, but not with a large heap. And now it is um, completely yep. open. You can do whatever you like with it. And if I tell that, then they say, "Okay, interesting choice," because from technological perspective, is really one of the leading servers. I would say is a lean one and then fast startups. And um, yep. Another question: um, What is the one of the, you know the most interesting applications of Open Liberty you ever saw? You know something like Open Liberty on Mars. <laughs> um, well, I think one really interesting one that we used it, w it was a demo done by one of our very early offering managers, but he actually made a minecraft extension there's like there's a youtube video on this i'll have to search it later but he like made a minecraft extension where it was actually running a liberty server inside of minecraft and he actually had blocks inside of minecraft with labels for the different features on them um and he put a switch like a, a lever on each block and that was like if he flipped the switch in minecraft then it would dynamically enable or disable the feature in the liberty server and he was actually like foot he would like turn on security um in minecraft and then he would go refresh refresh his web browser and then it would prompt him for like a a user login this is actually fantastic it's actually great use case and um what i always wanted to do and i think it started in the early jboss is before whitefly so i think it was 2006 or 7 and the whole 3D stuff started, and my idea was... So I have a younger brother, and then my brother did some 3D work with Java and really enjoyed that. And um, and he, he at one point of time, he created a, like a virtual Earth, but it's really like 10 years ago, a virtual Earth, and you can, you can drive in a vehicle on a moon-like structure. And I said, this is actually great, and it created its own API, um, could manipulate objects and i think okay this was before minecraft but yep. the idea was it's like what we could actually do is we could visualize the application server so we can walk in back then there was no wars there were ears so you could actually walk in into an ear and then see all the modules and then i could you know hit the module and see for instance the metrics so we always interested me is you no know, monitoring how healthy a module is and this um 
this monitoring stuff was, was all, always exposed from the application server. So we could actually go, so like a 3D admin console for the application server. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. I think I never but, had time to do this, but uh, I'm glad that your manager did it because uh, Minecraft is even easier, I think, because you get you the environment for free. So I know yeah. I, I didn't have to bother my brother to implement something for me. So now I could use Minecraft. This is actually brilliant. Yeah, so that was a very interesting way to do it. I haven't seen anything else come off of that. I think that YouTube video went out in like, it was like really early on. It was like 2012 or 2013, I want to say. Um, but yeah, like anything that helps people visualize what's going on um, inside their environments is super helpful. So like like your Prometheus dashboards and stuff that are showing you, you know, metrics or whatever, um, if if we just can put our eyes on the data or what's going on, it becomes, like as humans, it becomes very obvious like where problems are and where the low-hanging fruit is to make things more efficient. So like if you could like visualize your war and see like, oh, this library is, is accounting for 50% of my application footprint, but I, but I only use it um, for like two lines of code that I could write myself, you know, then that's a good candidate for, for removing. Um, at uh, the next idea, a little bit easier to to implement, uh, but still need time. There's like Oculus, Oculus Go, I think it's called, yeah, three D goggles, and yep. uh, and there are I think two hundred dollars or something like this, or so the the cheaper one, just a standalone. And what you can do, you get uh, the three D Firefox in, inside of that, and the three D Firefox you can actually implement a three D world with web components. And this was also the idea, no? As they okay, let's hack some web components and provide, you know, a three D, three D admin console to the application servers. Also, should yeah. be actually easy uh, to visualize things. But um, it's the uh, problem is, you know, you start with something like this, you will spend probably millions of hours, and no one cares at the end. But uh, <laughs> but it's really, <laughs> really interesting use case. So this is um, and, and the. If you find the video, please send me the link. I will put it to the show notes. It's, uh, actually, uh, so what seems to me, you know, the new IBM is like people really having fun with the enterprise stuff. So it, it is like great news, right? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy the direction we're taking. It's yeah, it's looking good. Cool. Uh, if you can tell me this, so um, what are the next features of? Uh, of open liberty you can you know share with our audience without getting into trouble um well i can say we're some of the things that are publicly available but you just kind of have to know where to look to find them out um we are super active in micro profile right now so like the um like especially like in the reactive space mm -hmm. um we're, we're really you know, looking at that and staying up to date and trying to be leaders in the micro profile community. Um, also, another thing that like my team particularly is working on is a function we've had in beta for quite a while. And that's like uh, a user interface for testing database connections and just validating resources in general. So validating like your MQ connections or JDBC or um, cloud and connections, um, just getting like a simple test button for that to see is it good or is it not super valuable um, i have to say uh I got yeah. two questions today are the ahex uh from 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 attendees how to validate or how to test database connection exactly the question 
And in projects, we from time to time always had trouble with connection pools where we had uh, stale physical connections. So like um, on the next request, we got a problem because uh, the connection, logical connection looked good, but the you know the underlying connection was broken and we always built something. But uh, this is actually a really useful feature. Yeah, and actually we've had... Um... Liberty started out in the JMX days, like as far as monitoring goes, we did monitoring through MBNs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a lot of MBNs in the runtime. And then it kind of turned out that, you know, people weren't really using MBNs that much. And then microprofile metrics came along. And um, one one interesting thing we did is we actually came, we came up with a, a mechanism to automatically expose all MBNs as... Uh, rest endpoints and we also um, can expose our mbn data the mbn data as microprofile metrics data as well so especially like for your database connection analytics if you just turn on mp metrics um, and hook it into prometheus you should get some you know some nice analytics there super useful and this is a uh, very similar also what what payara is doing but this feature is very useful that you can also expose internal server um, behavior or uh, or metrics to the outside world. Um, yep. On that note, um, does WebC also have, oh, sorry, Open Liberty also have uh, like a incoming request queue? So if you have, for instance, um, JAXRS request, usually the request is parsed, put to the queue, and then processed by a thread pool. So there's also a queue between, right? Yep. And, you know what I mean? Yeah, we have. Um, we're doing some work on concurrency right now, so we have um, actually micro profile concurrency is a spec that I'm directly involved in, and there we're looking at sort of extending the Java EE concurrency programming model with the, actually the eventual hope that we roll that back into Java EE concurrency someday. Um, but basically, we can give you can create manage executors that have uh, custom constraints so you can say i want this managed executor to you know at at most run five items concurrently and say don't ever let the backlog get more than 10 items and if it gets more than 10 items then just start rejecting the work outright kind of a, as like a bulkhead approach yeah and i think we actually use it as our bulkhead implementation very useful this is um, i don't covers. know whether you saw my porcupine library very old one where, where I implemented that on top of managed executor service. You saw that? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, if you go to my GitHub account and, and, and try to find Porcupine, and this Porcupine, this is uh, another word for Hystrix, right? <laughs> and okay, back yep. then I got uh, lots of questions about Hystrix on Java E. You know, Hystrix is dead, but back then it was hot. And I say, actually, you don't need Hystrix because with Java E, there you can have a bulkhead very easy. And this is what you mentioned right now. I implemented on top of not managed executor service rather than it's called the thing managed threads. And I used the managed threads with executor service and CDI and expose some metrics. But now I don't use the library anymore very often because we have micro profile. But my question was not regarding MP concurrency rather than um, open liberty implementation. So what usually the application server have is if you, um, if you access a servlet, let's say, then uh, what the application servers are doing, they are putting the request first into internal queue, which is not exposed to developers, and then they are processing the request with a thread pool. 
And my question was, um, does the Open Liberties also have such an incoming queue, whether you know that? So what I know is the WebLogic, Whitefly is something like a uh, auto-managed queue. Payara, the queue is, uh, is, is directly visible. And WebSphere had at least a monitoring. So the WebSphere traditional or classic had a way to monitor the incoming request. Do you have an idea whether OpenLiberty has also such a queue? I'm sure we have a queue somewhere in the implementation. I, have ne I haven't been involved directly with the web container code. Mm -hmm. um, but just to give you an idea how, of how Liberty handles async stuff under the covers, all of the Liberty runtime runs on one, has one thread pool. And that thread pool gets dynamically scaled um, based on some algorithm that we implemented um, where it will basically test, you know, does adding one more thread to the thread pool get me more throughput or not? So it will dynamically grow and shrink the, the global thread pool um, as needed. Perfect. And as, as for web container on its own, I believe there's a configuration element where you can, um, you can, you know, limit the number of incoming requests or perhaps a request queue, but I just don't know that off the top of my head. No problem, but this is what you describe right now is exactly what Wi-Fi is also doing. And why I'm asking is because if we would expose exactly this queue uh, via metrics, then what you will get, you will um, you will see whether the server is overloaded or not. So yep. um, because um, if you have a metric and they say the queue, you know, is uh, is deeper and deeper, or there are more and more requests in the queue. You will need. You will know at, at in one point of time the server will break, and uh, this would be interesting um, resource to expose via metrics. This is why I'm asking. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know. So, setting aside whether or not Liberty has something for that out of the box, you you could pretty easily implement it on your own using microprofile metrics, particularly if you have a JAXRS resource method, right? So like if you put, you know, at counted or at timed on your JAXRS request, you can put it either the method or the class level, I believe. Um, and that will give you your, your metric data that way. Um, and then if you want to limit it, so you're not, um, you know, flooding your request queue, or at least if it is flooded, give people a quick response that says, sorry, I'm flooded. I can't, access yeah. your request and just yeah. reject it outright, then you can use bu the bulkhead annotations for that. Sure. Uh, this is, it was just, you know, if there were a queue before you might JAXRS resource, then uh, it is really uh, good to know how deep the queue is. Otherwise, it has an impact on latency. And this, you could expose such a queue to uh, metrics. And then with Prometheus, you can even predict when the server will break. This is why I'm asking. So something uh, useful. And um, yep. the, the next thing is with the thread pool you, you mentioned. So the state of the thread pool could be exposed via metrics, right? Yep, definitely. So this would be actually also a great use case, you know, to expose the internal thread pool from, from, from Open Liberty via metrics to see what is the current state, how many threads are active, because then it gives you a feedback, you know, how busy the server actually is. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm really happy that I'm talking to you about this. You have lots of lots of good ideas on things that could be improved. So for just for you and for anybody else listening to this, um, the, the Liberty team is super active on monitoring both Stack Overflow questions and just our public GitHub issues. If any user requests get raised, um, with like ideas or whatever, we'll um, we 
always try to be very prompt about routing those requests and at least giving them some sort of, you know, attention or response, um, especially, you know, usability feedback like metrics um, is, you know, a great thing to to let us know about and where we can improve. Yeah, this is what I can really just uh, confirm. Uh, I found a small issue with the open API and the race an issue on GitHub and I think within four hours, uh, I got uh, the first feedback and then it was rerouted internally and I think now it's solved. And um, yeah, this is like uh, your responsiveness is really great. Yep. So now where people can find you on the internet or um, how people can help you to improve Open Liberty. So give me some links to your Twitter accounts, GitHubs and uh, whatever you like. Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter, trying to get more active there. Just Andrew underscore Guibert. That's my last name mm-hmm. um, on Twitter. Uh, and I'm also on on GitHub, too, under A. Guibert. Oh, cool. And I, I occasionally I'll blog on um, openliberty.io and usually tweet out those blogs that I write. Cool. Anything we forgot to mention? I think we pretty much covered it all. So perfect. So thank you. And um, if you like, I would really like to invite you again, you know, and speak about whatever happened with Open Liberty in one year or half a year or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. So thank you.